This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We first met Donald Sully Sullivan in the first novel in Richard Rousseau's North Bath trilogy, Nobody's Fool. In the second book, Sully dies. The third book opens 10 years later. We're still in the town of North Bath, but it's undergoing major changes as it's being annexed by its much wealthier neighbor, Skylar Springs. Peter is Sully's son. He's still grieving the loss of his father and also dealing with the way this loss affects so many other people in the town. And now Thomas, Peter's estranged son, has made his way to North Bath, and a corpse has been discovered in an abandoned hotel. The police departments of North Bath and Schuyler Springs have been consolidated, and Chief Raymer, whom we met in the first two books, is retired and in a complicated relationship with the new chief, a black woman named Charisse, who's also his former lover. A lot is still happening in this quiet and unassuming town in upstate New York. I spoke to Richard Rousseau about his novel, Somebody's Fool. Somebody's Fool. This is the third book in your North, your North Bath trilogy. Can you tell us a little bit about the trilogy and about Sully? And, and, I, and I should say, and I think it's important to say, that one does not have to have read the previous two books to read this one. Well, I suppose if you look at the, the, the trajectory of these, of these three books, and also a bunch of other Richard Russo novels in there as well, you know, including Empire Falls and Bridge of Sighs, and going all the way back to Mohawk and The Risk Pool, my first two novels. What you find me doing in those books is not straying terribly far from the small upstate New York mill town where I was born and raised. It's a very small triangle of upstate New York that runs from Albany at one end of the triangle and and this town where I where I was born and grew up in Gloversville and then a little bit farther north, um, Saratoga Springs, which is kind of the stand-in for uh, for Schuyler Springs in these three novels. And North Bath, I haven't situated in my imagination quite so specifically, but it's but it's in that area. And the important thing to know about North Bath in terms of these this trilogy of books is that that North Bath is the unlucky neighbor and Schuyler Springs is is the lucky one. And it's been this whole trajectory of, of luck has been going on for a while because they're both towns that originally had these flowing springs and people from New York and elsewhere would come up to my Schuyler Springs in real life Saratoga Springs uh, and places like Boston Spa and my, um, and, and my un, unlucky town here. And people would come up to those springs and send, they, they would, as they said, take the water. The problem is that in North Bath, the water stopped flowing. And um, for the people who live there, it wasn't just a question of the water. It wasn't just a question of the baths drying up and people not coming there uh, anymore. They began to feel that um, their luck had changed in, in all kinds of ways. They had, they had become uh, not only an unlucky place, but an unlucky people. Whereas Schuyler Springs, just, you know, just a few miles up the road, their springs are still percolating away. And, and um, they have become, uh, the people who live there have, are, are much more progressive um, politically. Um, and so when good things have happened, um, those good things have, have, have settled kind of in, in Schuyler Springs, where they have this, they, they now have, a, a you know, a racetrack and a, 
and um, uh, an arts council and um, um, all, all kinds of business um, opportunities uh, coming along there. Starbucks moves in <laughs> and, and, and North Bath, by the time this, this, this third volume uh, comes along, um, this has to be the end of the North Bath trilogy because at the beginning of this third novel, North Bath um, has, it's, it has been down on its luck from the beginning, but now it is being subsumed into Schuyler Springs because they've, they, uh, they, they've been kind of, as a, as a community, they've been on an economic morphine drip for a while, and, and now it's just become untenable. And so um, North Bath has just kind of gobbled them up, which is what sets the, the plot of, um, of this third novel in motion. That and the, and the recession of 2008, which, of course, this, is, this takes place around 2010. I haven't been terribly specific about it, but around 2010 um, and the, the Great Recession has taken its toll everywhere, but it's really taken its toll on North Bath and all of the characters in the book from, from Bertie, who owns the, uh, the horse, the famous restaurant in all three of these novels, um, uh, to Janie, who, who owns Hattie's Grill, which is also in all three novels. Um, to uh, most of the other characters in, in this book are trying to figure out what to do. Is, is now the time to give up, to just throw in the towel? Among those, um, Douglas Raymer has been a part of all, although he plays a very minor role in the first book, he's, he becomes much more important in the second, and he's, he's pivotal and critical in the third. Raymer, who's been the chief of police in Bath, for the last two novels at the beginning of this one, no longer has a job because there's no longer a town to be the <laughs> police chief of. So that's kind of the that's kind of the ground um, situation. Except that I would add um, that Sully, um, who has become a kind of an iconic figure, I think, in part because he really is a, an interesting uh, an interesting guy. Uh, I know he's interesting because he's based on my uh, on my own father who, uh, let me tell you, was um, a very entertaining man to be around. Uh, I wasn't around him much until I was old enough to drink and could occupy the bar stool next to his. My parents separated when, when I was young, and so I spent much of my young life uh, yearning for an absent father uh, and finally getting to know him um, far too late. But we kind of made up for, for lost time during those years when, when I was coming home from the university and working road construction with him. But I really got, I really only got to know him during that time. And it wasn't that much longer after that, um, that he, that he became ill and he died before my first book was published. So he knew, I, he kind of knew there when he was sick that, that I wanted to be a writer. But by the time he died, there was certainly no evidence of the fact that I was ever going to be one. Um, and, um, a, a lot of this novel is, is, is me trying to make up for lost time, having not had as much time with my father as I would have wished and wishing him into fish, fictional existence in, in several of my novels for the, for the benefit of his company. And then of course, interestingly, if he, I mean, that, that would have been fine with me. I would have remained interested in him for all of those reasons. And my yearning certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone away or, or the pleasure that I took in his company and continue to take long after his death. But then of course, Paul Newman comes along and, and portrays him in Robert Benton's movie <laughs> of, of Nobody's Fool. And I came, I mean, what part of the reason that I, or one of the things that I realized when I started 
writing the second novel, Everybody's Fool, one of the things that I realized was that I no longer had sole ownership of that character because Paul Newman's portrayal of him had been so wonderful and so vivid. And of course, by that time, by the time I started writing Everybody's Fool, right around that period, Paul had died too. And he and I worked on several movie projects together, as well as uh, Empire Falls, the miniseries. Yeah. Um, and so I got a chance, I got a chance to enjoy his company again, all over again, too, in, in writing these these last two novels, because because as much as I mean, every there I am channeling in the in this third book, even though Sully is gone in the third book, he's a ghostly presence um, throughout this book. And there I am still all these years later, you know, a couple of decades later after my dad's passing and, um, and and of course, almost a decade now after Paul's passing finding it every bit as much, every bit as entertaining to be in their company now as it was in real life now, these low, these many years ago. Sorry, that was a rather long answer to a, to a short oh, question. Oh no, that's perfect. I, I love that you've covered all of this ground for everyone. And it's very important to contextualize this idea about this story, this kind of, it's a kind of a generational trauma that, sons inherit from their fathers. I find that that's a timeless story. Yeah, I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And it's, it shows us quite a lot about what women endure and your novels underscore those ideas too. And also what people who are perhaps in the autumn and winter of their lives experience in terms of a kind of, of a deeper sense of feeling lost or bereft. And I come back to this idea that everyone is sort of lost and a little bit untethered in North Bath, even when they've stayed in the same small town for their entire lives. And now, as as you say, as it's being annexed and it's being absorbed and sort of obliterated, I, I see this novel as being about these characters still standing their ground in one way or another, wanting to hold on to their place in the world. And as you were talking, I, I thought, we're all still pining for Sully. We're all still waiting for, you know, dad to come back. We're all still waiting. We're all rub. We're all rub. <laughs> wanting, <laughs> wanting Sully uh, to come back to us. So I just, I, I find that so interesting is that every single character here is sort of untethered and will now be, as we all are, and will now be even more so. And and also I have to say, and, and, and I'm sort of onto a lot of different ideas now, this idea of the small town as the setting, a lot of things happen in very small towns and people from very small towns are enormously, endlessly fascinating and complex. I think that needs to be underscored too. Well, and and the reason the reason that small towns, um, these various towns, Mohawk. I mean, I've moved from from Mohawk to um, to North Bath um, in these three books, and and um, and Empire Falls, and another version of my of my hometown in in Bridge of Sighs. They're all versions of the of the same town. But one of the reasons that this is such fertile ground for me is is that if you're interested in class as I am, um, and have been really right from the start. Um, if you're interested in class, there's no better place to investigate it than in places like North Bath and Schuyler Springs, 
Because unlike big cities, what happens in in big cities as opposed to small towns is that people self-select in terms of where they live. And I remember my daughter, uh, my older daughter, Emily, when she moved to New York, and she'd been a small town girl because she was growing up where all the places where Barbara, my wife and I had lived. And there was just a series of small towns, uh, most of them university towns, but all of them small. She was a small town girl. And she and she moved to uh, when she moved to New York, um, she was living out in Brooklyn and she would take the train into Manhattan in the morning um, and get off, you know, in midtown Manhattan. And then at the end of the day, um, she would take that F train back to Brooklyn. And I remember her telling me that she hadn't been there very long. Maybe it was just a couple of weeks that when she was riding home on that subway, she could pretty much tell who was going to get off at which stop. And, and she could absolutely predict the people who were going to get off at, at her stop at, in, in the particular, because they, they I mean, they looked, um, they looked a lot like her and they seemed to have the same amount of money and they seemed to work at the same kind of places. Um, doing the same kind, you know, doing the same kind of jobs. She knew a, a number of young uh, young women there who were actually in publishing as she was, and so the the, the bigger the place that you um, that you live in, the more likely your neighbors are are going to be just like you, and you're not going to have a, quite as much contact with other people. So if you're on the upper west side of New York, you're in with a different bunch of people than on than, than if you were in the village or on the upper east side of New York, and there's a greater there's a greater homogeneity. Whereas if you if you're in North Bath or Schuyler Springs or Empire Falls, Mrs. Whiting, who kind of runs the entire town of Empire Falls, she comes in contact with that poor boy who's going to get a gun at some point later in the book um, and use it. Um, so the very poorest people in town and the, and the very richest people in town their paths cross and they do all the time. And if you're a writer and if a writer, if you're a writer like me, who's more interested in class than just about anything else, then this is your natural setting. If, if, if these are the stories, if these are the stories you're telling, you're much, you're, you're going to get an awful lot farther in places like Empire Falls and, and North Bath and Schuyler Springs that if you set it in a, in a place where people have a, more opportunity to self-select and, um, and where all the communities that that people live in are um, well, I, I want the term I want to use here is gated, but I don't want it to. I don't not in the sense not not in the sense of of having an actual gate that you pass, but but the kind of economic gates that that we're all aware of in larger cities. They're all gated after a fashion, yeah. and there's a certain amount of gating that goes on in places like Schuyler Springs and 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 North Bath. There's a certain amount of self-selecting that goes on but there are fewer of them, at least in my experience. And that's what fascinates me about them. And something else that complicates the story in Somebody's Fool now is not just class, but race. Yeah. We have the characters of Charisse and Jerome who are twins. Right. And uh, they are Black. And they are in a context of this particular town with Charisse on the police force. And it's it's not without its problems, this kind of, I don't, I don't know, persecution, this kind of how different they are in yeah. this particular place. Even though our dear Raymer is in love with Charisse, but I, I want to know about this, about writing, not just about class, as you always have been so interested in, but now in the way that race enters 
the story front and center. I mean, it, it really is a very big yep. part of this story. Yep, sure is. Well, let me let me take just a half step back, um, just just to talk about the time in which this book was written. In some ways, it's kind of a pandemic document. Also, um, I think a George Floyd document, um, the Raymer section of this story. Um, when I began at the ver in the very earliest stages of this book, when I envisioned writing it, I had certain things in mind. I had certain things in mind for the arc of Peter's story because Sully was going to be gone and, and it would, Peter would become the center. And a lot of Sully's friends, because Peter's been given the, the job of looking in on people, um, certain people that his father wants him to uh, make sure are okay, um, Rub and Carl Roebuck and, and Bertie mm -hmm. over at the horse. And 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 that that part of the that part of the book I had a pretty good notion of, and I had an idea for what was going to happen um, in in the Raymer story, but then George Floyd was murdered, and suddenly the book, the book that I had in mind to write simply could not be written anymore. Yvette, I, I don't know how to say it any, except to say that 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 that, that portion of that book simply could not exist um, without, for one thing, a really bad cop, you know, because the in, in the second book, both cops, um, Charisse and, and Raymer, who happen to be in love, despite the fact that one is white and one is black, both of the cops in that, in that story are, are, are really good people. You get a sense that maybe there are, that not all cops are, are good, and Raymer spends a good deal of time as he's dealing with with his uh, with Miller, <laughs> trying yeah. to explore, trying to explore what exactly what exactly a, a a good a good cop is, and there's a fair amount of discussion of that in the second book, but boy, it really comes to the center of this book. And and one of the things that happened to me after George George Floyd's murder was that I realized that I had to have at least one really awful racist corrupt cop in it. Uh, to take it just to take into account our new, you know, our new reality with with regard to police and policing. Um, so that had to happen. But more importantly than that, for me, was that I realized that race itself was going to have to play a much larger role. Because in the second book, the fact that Raymer and Sharice were in love, and because Raymer was basically pretty colorblind, about as colorblind as a middle-aged white guy can be, didn't matter to him. But the other thing that had happened as a result of George Floyd's murder was that in this book, at least, some of the effects of race and racism simply had to be dealt with now in a way that didn't have to be dealt with back when I was writing Nobody's Fool and Everybody's Fool. And so the first thing that I did and I, for about six months during the pandemic, just in preparation for writing the Raymer Charisse, the arc of the Raymer Charisse Jerome story in this mm -hmm. was that I just started reading black and brown skin writers. I, and I read probably 20 books, at least maybe 40 and not as research. I, I, I do want to make that point. I wasn't I wasn't hoping to learn facts or I, I wasn't looking for stuff that I could take and make use of because I didn't know what I was looking for. I, it just felt that in order to write Raymer and Charisse truly, I myself had to know more about what it would really mean 
for Raymer and Sharice, especially if Sharice becomes, because I always knew Sharice was going to become the, mm-hmm. the chief of police in 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 Schuyler. But I was going to have to I was going to have to educate myself a bit more. I had to immerse myself if I was going if race. Let me put it this way. I'm, I'm struggling here. But if race was going to be front and center, I simply didn't know enough and I didn't experience I hadn't experienced enough. And um, so even though I wasn't looking for stuff, I wasn't looking for for information. I, I felt like in order to write this story correctly, I just had to immerse myself in a world where race was front and center if I was going to write a story in which race was front and center. And so I took about at least a six, maybe nine month hiatus and just just did that. Was it helpful? Um, absolutely. I mean, you, I'm, you, 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 know, you know what, if that, you're probably in a better position than I am to tell me if it was helpful. I just think that my own sense is that, and I don't want to give away much here with regard mm-hmm. to... Uh, uh, with regard to Raymer and Sharice in particular, I think that the difficulty that Raymer and Sharice have in this book, Raymer's inability at the beginning of the book to to begin to really think about what it would mean, what would it mean if they had a child? Raymer, at that point, at, at the beginning of this book, has not given a moment's thought to either having a child or the fact that if they did have a child, that child would be Black and the world would start doing its nasty work on that child. And I think in some way um, that was all that reading was helpful. And it led to something even more important than that, because I think the the real love story, I don't think this is giving anything away here or giving too much away. If there's a love story in this book, it's between Raymer and Jerome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They are, they are these two messed up guys, one black, <laughs> one white. <laughs> and, and in some sort of magical way, each is what the other needs. Yes. Uh, and I won't say much more about it than that, but, but that's, I have never had so much fun. I don't think as allowing those two men to just educate <laughs> each other <laughs> and this, the, their affection, their affection, despite Yes. All the things, all the things that that maybe could have driven them apart. All the, I mean, it's just, it's just an uphill battle. But but they show something. They show they show themselves something. They show each other something. It's so true. It's so, it's so unlikely. I don't want to give anything away. But it's it's yes. It's just uh, it's a friendship that is so unlikely. But I, I do want to say this about the research and the reading that you did around the time of George Floyd's murder and beyond six to nine months. But I'm I'm thinking now about when I read your memoir elsewhere, one of the things I was struck by was the research that you obviously did to try to begin to understand obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. So I feel like you, you're just this, you're a writer who asks questions and immerses himself in researching and reading and trying to figure things out. I mean, Jerome lives with obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I find this so interesting. It's, it's also a question with gambling that enters the story, the larger story that we also saw in, in your in your memoir. I mean, these are things we read about in your nonfiction and they make their way into your fiction, but, or these are things that ex- exist in real life. This country has a problem with race. There are questions that need to be asked around 
these sorts of things in small towns, in big cities, around the question of policing, and so on. But I, I so admire this idea of the reading and the research that you do to try to begin to surface some kind of an understanding, maybe for yourself as a writer, but it comes through in the characters. And I will agree that this idea of Jerome, the the buddy story, <laughs> the love story with with um, Jerome and Raymer. The character of Jerome is so rich to me. Uh, I, I don't want to give a whole lot away, but I, I do want, I just want to underscore one part where he's in a bookstore because I love bookstores, but uh, that's all I'll say about that. But there's, there's just something about this character that I'm, I'm very much drawn to. And, and I'm also a twin to a, to a male twin. So <laughs> I How just love yeah, I just love the the story. All right, now, now you're now you're kind of terrifying me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what did I? How much I've, I probably got an awful lot wrong here. That's that's, that's the other thing. What we're talking about here is is imagination and um, yeah. Um, this this book, you know, I don't I I don't know whether there will be any any blowback. Um, I mean, the the two black characters in this book were in the last one, and I didn't get any blowback from it. But between everybody's fool and nobody's fool, there's there's a lot. You you often you often hear these days that writers should stay in their lanes, and that's that's not what we're meant to do, I don't think. But the the reading that I did, the, the reading that I did to prepare for the racial the race aspects of this book, the the research that I did on obsessive compulsive disorder because it's cut such a wide swath through my mother's life, my grandmother's life, and now into um, my life and my children's lives. Um, all of that, all of that was, was very important. But the point that I would want to make, I think, is that when you realize that you're going to be exercising your imagination in a way that it's not only a, it's not only a writer's right to do that, it's his or her uh, obligation to do it. But that's not, that's not a jail, that's not a get out of jail free card. And if you're going to approach serious subjects seriously, I think the only way to the only way to do that is with a certain degree of humility. You can't say to yourself, oh, I've got this. You know, if you just assume that about yourself, oh, I've got this, I've got an imagination, I can do this, that's when you're more like that's when you are more likely to be called out. The only the only way to, at least to my mind, the the only way to go to the places that I want to go imaginatively and to take those risks, to run those, to run those risks is, is to do so with at least a degree of humility at every turn, recognizing, you know, what it is you don't know. I'm not saying you need to do a ton of research first. As a matter of fact, I was having a conversation with a, with a fellow writer that I like an awful lot who, who knew Edgar Doctorow, um, who is mm -hmm. such a historical, uh, such a great historical writer. Um, and she was asking him how much research he did. Um, and he said, and his response to that was almost nothing at the beginning and then a lot. He'd, he'd like to get the arc of his characters right. And in telling the story, um, he would generally figure out what it was he didn't know. And then he would have to go back and do a lot of research to check his imagination. But he would always, he would always try to get as much of that done, as much of the storytelling done as, as he could. But there again, the issue becomes imagination on the one part, which on the one on the one hand we're entitled to, but also the necessity to 
the, the humility to realize that at some point you're going to have to figure out what you don't know. <laughs> and, um, and it could be a little or it could be a lot, but you, but you owe it to yourself and your reader at some point in the process, either at the beginning or at the end, you owe it to, to your reader and to your characters. I mean, I don't want to get Jerome wrong. I love <laughs> Jerome. <laughs> exactly. and, and one of the things that terrifies me about, about any book that I write I fall in love. I fall in love with these characters, and 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 more for their sake even than mine. I don't want to betray them. They become very real to me, and 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 they have. I I I have a sense of obligation to them. Yes, I I understand what you're saying. I think about this this imagination, the imagination part, the things that you can create from your understanding of the world. Yes, from the things that are going on around you. Yes, but that you can imagine a character like Jerome. And, or you can imagine a character like Rub or Raymer or Ruth or anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the, from your imagination. One of my favorite parts of uh, the memoir elsewhere is where you talk about your mother being largely responsible for your becoming a writer because she encouraged reading. Mm-hmm. And I love the scene where you are you and your family are having bookcases built in your house and the carpenter's like, are you sure you need that much space? For your books? <laughs> yeah. and I was like, yes, he needs more space for more <laughs> books. And this is it for me. It, it's this idea of reading deeply and reading widely. That is some, it was a gift from your mother, really. I I love knowing that walking into all of your books. I love knowing that this is something that came from your mom. Absolutely. Um, And as I said, as I said in, in, in elsewhere, which is by the way, a book, I think she would have hated. Um, um, (laughs) And a book that I, and a book that I still feel guilty about having written, despite the fact that an awful lot of people have come up to me and said, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with something like this. Either I'm a caregiver, or I've I've dealt with this my entire life. Um, whatever, but I still feel I still feel guilty and and about about writing it. But the one thing um, that you're pointing out that that was was so important to me was that really it was both of my parents who made me a writer um, because it was my mother who made me a reader. And you're not going to be a writer, I don't think, um, without without being a voracious reader. And and that was. That was the greatest of her gifts to me was was her coming home late at night after a long day's work. And then, you know, a couple of hours in the car in, in, in on the way to work and on the way back, coming home exhausted, still having a bunch of work to do to get me ready for school the next day. And when anybody else would have just collapsed in front of the TV, um, my mother took out a book and and I could I could see her doing that. I could see her. And she read all weekend long. What a gift to, as, as a kid, you know, to be um, to be given that, 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 that there's that there's there's pleasure, there's growth, there's there's escape. There's so, yeah, I mean, and, and then, of course, my father, be, by being such a classic bullshitter and, and all around entertaining guy, mm-hmm. I mean, he gave me he, obviously he gave me something to write about, despite the fact that I don't think he probably read more than 20 books his entire life. He was not a reader. But boy, was he a storyteller. Um, and I, I, I learned a lot about storytelling from, from him, just, just this, listening to him tell the same story over and over and watching him revise verbally, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but, but storytelling, 
um, in all of my books, the, the very act of storytelling um, is very important. In, in this book, for instance, Great Expectations plays a yeah. fairly large role. Miss um, Burl from the first book. I know. Nobody's Fool book gives Raymer a, um, a copy of, of uh, Great Expectations, which he reads the first chapter of and is so terrified by he, he, he hides it only to have the book turn up again. <laughs> I love that part. 50, 50 years later, not, not another copy of Great Expectations, the same copy of Great <laughs> Expectations with Miss Burl's note to him in it. And at the, at the, at the end of the book and Raymer hasn't been a great, a great reader either. He's, he sees books as things that are, that are more likely to frighten him than anything else. And, and, and by the, and by the end of the book, he, he's, you, we find him sitting down to read great expectations, which is a way of saying thank you, thank you to his old eighth grade teacher. And um, I, I've had people ask me from time to time, they discover that, that in addition to my MFA and, in fiction writing, which most people assume you have these days, sometimes people will discover that that I had, in addition to my my BA uh, in English, I also did an MA and then a PhD in English. Yeah. And people will sometimes ask me, "Did all that? Did that PhD do you any good?" And, and you know, all, all I all I can say is that that, that I am the, the sum of my parts, and and a lot of those parts are 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 books, and I uh, I find myself returning to. I have certain magical books that that um, uh, in in my life that I that I return to, and 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 most most people do, and Raymer is learning to. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, recently on Facebook, Ann Patchett said that Richard Rousseau is the nicest guy in the whole entirety of the book business. <laughs> I'm fond of I'm fond of Ann as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that part of the answer to this next question i'm not sure but what is it that you think is the key element needed to maintain a writing career as you have done so a prolific writer an award-winning and acclaimed writer and still manages to be the nicest guy in the business what's the what is the key element i don't know is it reading is it writing every day is it being an observer maybe all of the above, but what rises to the top for you? This is going to sound probably a little bit simplistic, but I, I just love the act of, of both writing and, and reading. I've, I've been in conversations the last two nights, two nights I've been in, in literary conversations with um, Danny Shapiro a couple of nights ago and Andre Debuse um, last night. And, and Andre was saying last night, something that I, that I agree with um, is that part of the reason that that I still do this, you know, that I still continue to, to write books and, you know, screenplays and essays and all that is that it's just as exciting to me now as it was when I was, you know, breaking in and didn't really know how to do it yet, but, but, but really wanted to. It's just as as absolutely thrilling to me to do that now as it as it ever was but i also remember in my early mfa days when i when i didn't know how to do it yet i was learning how i was learning i was learning the skills i knew how to i knew how to write dialogue and i knew the basic you know the the basic building blocks of fiction character and point of view and tone and all that i i, I 
you know, I, I'd had, I had my tools, I had my toolbox. I hadn't quite figured out who I was yet, but I was working on it. And I just remember that in addition to the thrill of putting pen to paper and discovering these, these characters and what their relationships might, might be to me, um, the next best thing to that was going out after those, after those three hour workshops with my fellow fiction writers, and then just, and then just talking about our own work, but also books just deep into the night, often alcohol fueled, unfortunately, but, but mm -hmm. there we were, I mean, we just finished a, a three hour or four hour workshop and, and more than anything, anything else, it just made us raring to go. We just could not get enough. We got together, we ordered pitchers of beer, and we talked about the books that were, were exciting to us. One of the, one of the books that, that's made me most excited this summer reading, uh, and I'm not just saying this because Ann Patchett said something nice about me, but Ann Patchett's uh, new book, Tom Lake, was just so thrilling. I, I could not wait to talk with her about it because I knew we were going to be um, going on book tour at about the same time. The idea of being able to talk with another writer um, like Anne or like Andre or Danny Shapiro, the idea of getting together and talking about um, and being excited by each other's work, um, it, it's, just as, it's, it's, it's just as thrilling to me now, um, as it was in the beginning, and whether I don't know if that makes me a nice guy or not, I have no idea <laughs> about that. It's 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 lovely to think that um, other people think I'm a nice guy, but I, it, it, more more than anything else, I think it's just a manifestation of this of this still burning desire to do this crazy thing that that we do. It's it, and the beautiful thing about being a novelist, of course more than is, I think, having done a lot of screenwriting too. But the beautiful thing about being a novelist is that you never learn how to do what you're doing. And, and each book is a, in each book is a challenge. And you're so stunned at the end to discover the fact that you, with every book you think, all right, now I've finally done it. I finally, I've, I've finally um, decided to write the book that ultimately I can't write. <laughs> I've, I've set the bar too. I've set the bar too high. I've crashed into it. I'm, I'm now plummeting toward earth, towards the earth. And so each book, you know, each new book is going to be a challenge, but the excitement in that is just, is just wonderful. And, and I think un, un, unless you're, unless you're just a really jealous person of other people's success, I think if you're not, if you're not built that way, then that excitement just, bleeds over, or at least it does for me and a lot of the writers that I know. I can see this. and It's so clear to me. And I'm thinking now of something that your mother said, or something that you said about reading in Elsewhere, which is that reading is not a punishment. It's, it's, an, it's a reward. It's a gift. And I feel like writing is that. Writing is not drudgery. You know, people, writers will say sometimes it's painful and they don't look forward to turning on the you know, opening up the laptop and and starting their writing day, but I can I can sense that thrill and that excitement when I just when I hear you talk about it, but also when I read your work. Of course, um, you're the opposite of Hank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in straight man. No, I'm, I'm, I, I am not. Um, I, I am not constipated. <laughs> <laughs> In that way, um, and following and following the metaphor, that I mean, the people who know me best would say that I'm as full of shit 
now as I've ever been. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's got to go somewhere. We can we can say that on Texas Public Radio, right? We can say can that on a podcast. If, if, if we can't say it, you can believe it. Okay, we can say it on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard Russo, what a thrill. What an honor to get to talk to you. You've been so kind in your in your conversation with me. I I really appreciate it and it's it's been a it's been a blast for me to talk with you, believe me. Richard Rousseau is the author of Somebody's Fool. It's published by Knopf. Richard Rousseau is the author of nine previous novels, the memoir Elsewhere and two story collections. In 2002, he received the Pulitzer Prize for his novel Empire Falls. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>